I get to hear about all kinds of cool new things in the world, but I have to say that sometimes the buzzword density gets a bit too high and I start kind of rolling my eyes. But I thought for April 1st, which also this year happens to be Easter Sunday, I would just explore what happens if you put lots of buzzwords all together. Think of it as kind of a, a, an Easter egg. See whether something interesting might hatch from a sufficiently buzzworded Easter egg. So this podcast will be based on a blog post I wrote um, that's called Buzzword Convergence, Making Sense of Quantum Neural Blockchain AI. And yes, I'm kind of fooling around and stringing these buzzwords together, but the actual details of what I'll say are perfectly real. Okay, but so before we can start talking about the whole string of buzzwords, let's discuss some of the background to each of those buzzwords on their own. So we're going to go through quantum, neural, blockchain, AI. Let's start with quantum. So saying something is quantum sounds really modern, but actually quantum mechanics is a century old. And yeah, over the last century, it's been central to understanding, calculating lots of things in the physical sciences. But even after a century, truly quantum technology hasn't arrived. Yeah, there are things like lasers and MRIs and atomic force microscopes that rely on quantum phenomena and that needed quantum mechanics in order to be invented. But when it comes to the actual practice of engineering, what's done is still basically all firmly classical with nothing quantum about it. Though today, there's lots of talk about quantum computing and how it might change everything. I actually worked on quantum computing back in the early 1980s, so yeah, it's not that recent an idea. And I have to say, I was always a bit skeptical about whether quantum computing could ever really work, or whether any of the quantum gains one might get would be overwhelmed by inefficiencies in essentially measuring what's going on. But in any case, in the last uh, 20 years or so, there's been all sorts of nice theoretical work on formulating the idea of quantum circuits and quantum computing, and lots of things have actually been done with Wolfram Language, including an ongoing project of ours that uh, we did some live-streamed internal design reviews about to produce a kind of definitive symbolic way of representing quantum computations. But so far, all we can ever do in the Wolfram Language is to calculate about quantum computations, because the Wolfram Language itself just runs on ordinary classical computers that you can actually buy in the store today. There are certainly companies that have built what they say are small, true quantum computers, and actually we've been hoping to hook the Wolfram language up to them so we can implement a kind of quantum evaluate function. So far I have to say this hasn't happened, so I can't really vouch for what quantum evaluate will or will not do. But okay, so what's the big idea of quantum stuff? In ordinary classical physics, one can pretty much say that definite things happen in the world. You know, a billiard ball goes in this direction or that, but in any particular case, it's a definite direction. In quantum mechanics, though, the idea is that an electron, say, doesn't intrinsically go in a particular definite direction. Instead, it essentially goes in all possible directions, each with a particular quantum amplitude. And it's only when you insist on measuring where it went that you'll get a definite answer about it. And if you do many measurements, you just see probabilities for it to have gone in each different direction. Well, what quantum computing is trying to do is somehow to make use of the all possible directions idea in order to, in effect, get lots of computations done in parallel. So it's a tricky business, and there are only a few types of problems where the theory has been worked out, the most famous being integer factoring. 
And yes, according to the theory, a big quantum computer should be able to factor a big integer fast enough to make today's crypto infrastructure just implode. But the only thing anyone has so far even claims to have actually built along these lines is a tiny quantum computer that definitely can't yet do anything terribly interesting. But okay, so one critical aspect of quantum mechanics is that lots of different things can somehow happen altogether. There can be interference with different paths that, say, an electron can take. And this is mathematically similar to the interference that happens in light or even in water waves, just in classical physics. In quantum mechanics, though, there's supposed to be something much more intrinsic about the interference leading to the phenomenon of entanglement in which one basically can't ever see the wave that's interfering, only the effect of it. Uh, in computing, though, we're not making use of any kind of interference yet, because at least in modern times we're always trying to deal with discrete bits, while the typical phenomenon of interference, say in light, basically involves continuous numbers. Well, my personal guess is that optical computing, which will surely come, will succeed in delivering some spectacular speed-ups. It won't be truly quantum, though it might be marketed like that. And um, actually, for the, for the technically-minded, it's still a kind of complicated question how computation-theoretic results might apply to continuous processes like interference-based computing. But okay, so one critical aspect of quantum mechanics is that there can be interference between different paths that, say, an electron can take. This is mathematically similar to the interference that happens in light or even in water waves, just in classical physics. In quantum mechanics, though, there's supposed to be something much more intrinsic about the interference, leading to the phenomenon of entanglement, in which one basically can't ever kind of see the wave that's interfering, only the effect. Well, in computing, we're not making use of any kind of interference yet, because at least in modern times we're always trying to deal with discrete bits, while the typical phenomenon of interference, say in light, basically involves continuous numbers. And actually my personal guess is that optical computing, computing with light, will surely come and will actually succeed in delivering some spectacular speed-ups. It won't be truly quantum, though, though it might be marketed like that. And actually, for the technically-minded, it's a complicated question how computation-theoretic results apply to continuous processes like interference-based computing. But okay, so that's a little bit on what the quantum word means in the context that we're thinking of using it. Let's go on. The second word in our quantum neural blockchain AI is neural. So let's talk about what neural means. So a decade ago, computers didn't have any systematic way to tell whether a picture you showed them was of an elephant or a teacup. But in the past five years, thanks to neural networks, this has basically become easy. In fact, the image identifier we made, imageidentify.com, three years ago, is basically still state-of-the-art. So what's the big idea? Well, back in the 1940s, people started thinking seriously about the brain being like an electrical machine. And this led to mathematical models of neural networks, which were proved to be equivalent in computational power to mathematical models of digital computers. Well, over the years that followed, billions of actual digital electronic computers were built. And along the way, people, including me, experimented with neural networks. But nobody could really get them to do anything terribly interesting. Though, to be fair, for years they were quietly used for things like optical character recognition. But then, starting in 2012, a lot of people suddenly got very excited because it seemed like neural nets 
were finally able to do some very interesting things, at first especially in connection with images and image identification and so on. So what happened? Well, a neural net basically corresponds to a big mathematical function formed by connecting together lots of smaller functions, each involving a certain number of parameters or weights. And at the outset, the big function basically just gives random outputs. But the way the function is set up, it's possible to train it, to train the neural net, by tuning the parameters inside the function so that the function will give the outputs one wants. So it's not like ordinary programming where one explicitly defines the steps a computer should follow. Instead, the idea is just to give examples of what one wants the neural net to do and then to expect it to interpolate between these to work out what to do for any particular input. In practice, one might show a bunch of images of elephants and a bunch of images of teacups and then do millions of little updates to the parameters inside that function representing the network to get the network to output elephant when it's fed an elephant and teacup when it's fed a teacup. But here's the crucial idea. The neural net is somehow supposed to generalize from the specific examples it's shown. It's supposed to say that anything that's like an elephant example is an elephant, even if its particular pixels are quite different. Or said another way, there are lots of images that might be fed to the network that are in the basin of attraction for elephant as opposed to teacup. In kind of a mechanical analogy, one might think about there being lots of places water might fall on a landscape while still ending up flowing to one lake rather than another. Well, at some level, any sufficiently complicated neural net can in principle be trained to do anything. But what's become clear is that for lots of practical tasks that turn out to overlap rather well with some of what our brains seem to easily do, it's actually feasible with realistic amounts of GPU time to actually train neural nets with a few million elements to do useful things. And yes, indeed, in the Wolfram language, we've now got a rather sophisticated symbolic framework for training and using neural nets uh, with a lot of automation that itself uses neural nets for, for doing all the things it does. Okay, so that's a little bit on the neural idea. Let's move to our third word, blockchain. So the word blockchain was first used in connection with the invention of Bitcoin in 2008. But of course, the idea of blockchain had precursors. I mean, in its simplest form, a blockchain is like a ledger in which successive entries are coded in a way that depends on all previous entries. And ledgers have been around for a super long time in, in, uh, uh, since antiquity. But uh, crucial to making the whole blockchain ledger concept work is the idea of hashing. Hashing has actually been one of my favorite practical computation ideas, and I even independently came up with it when I was about 13 years old in 1973. But what hashing does is it takes some piece of data, like a text string, and makes a number, say between one and a million out of it. And it does this by kind of grinding up the data using some complicated function that always gives the same result for the same input, but will almost always give different results for different inputs. So there's a function called hash in the Wolfram language. And for it, for example, applying it to uh, a, a paragraph of text, like the one I'm just reading, gives some number that uh, is some, uh, some string of digits, 86438279, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but those, notice that that string of digits is much shorter than the paragraph of text itself. One's kind of ground up the paragraph of text and derived from it just this hash code number. OK, so how does this relate to blockchain? Well, back in the 1980s, people invented cryptographic hashes 
Actually, they're very related to things I've done on computational irreducibility. And the idea of cryptographic hashes is that while it's easy to work out the hash for a particular piece of data, it's very hard to find a piece of data that will generate a given hash. It's as if it's, it's easy to work forwards if you kind of know the key, which is the original data, to find out the hash, but it's hard to work backwards and find data that gives that hash. So let's say you wanted to prove that you created a particular document at a particular time. Well, you could compute a hash of that document and, for example, publish it in a newspaper. And actually, I think Bell Labs used to do this um, back when I did some consulting for them um, every week back in the 1980s. And so if you've done that, if you've published hashes of documents and newspapers, then if anybody ever says, no, you didn't have that document yet on a certain date, you can just say, but look, its hash was already published in every copy of the newspaper. So the idea of a blockchain is that one has a series of blocks with each containing certain content together with a hash. And then the point is that the data from which that hash is computed is a combination of the content of the block and the hash of the preceding block. So this means that each block, in effect, confirms everything that came before it on the blockchain. So in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, the big idea is to be able to validate transactions and, for example, to be able to guarantee just by looking at the blockchain that nobody has, for example, spent the same Bitcoin twice. Well, how does one know that the blocks are added correctly with all their hashes computed correctly and so on? Well, the point is that there's a whole decentralized network of thousands of computers around the world that store the blockchain, and there are lots of people, actually in practice not quite so many these days, competing to be the one to add each new block to the blockchain and to include in it the transactions people have submitted that they want in it. Well, the rules are more or less that the first person to add a block gets to keep the fees offered on the transactions in it. But each block then gets confirmed by lots of people including this block in their copy of the blockchain and then continuing to add to the blockchain with this block in it. So in the latest version of the Wolfram language, we have this nice little function blockchain block data that gives a kind of symbolic representation of blocks in, for example, the Bitcoin blockchain. So you can easily ask what the most recent block added to the Bitcoin blockchain that we've seen is. But And by the time maybe five or more blocks have been added, we can be pretty sure that everyone's satisfied that a particular block is correct. And yes, as we'll talk about quite a bit more later, there's kind of an analogy here between uh, with measurement and quantum mechanics we'll, we'll discuss. Anyway, traditionally, when people keep ledgers, say, of transactions, they'll just have one central place where the master ledger is maintained. But with a blockchain, the whole thing can be distributed, so you don't have to trust any single entity to keep the ledger correct. And that's led to the idea that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin can flourish without central control and without any of those pesky things like governments or central banks or anything involved. Um, at least in the couple of, last couple of years, there's been certainly lots of excitement generated by people making large amounts of money speculating on, on cryptocurrencies. But currencies aren't the only thing one can use blockchains for, and Ethereum pioneered the idea that in addition to transactions, one can run arbitrary computations at each node. So right now with Ethereum, the results of each computation are confirmed by being run on every single computer in the network, which is incredibly inefficient. But the bigger point is just that computations can be running autonomously on the network, and the computations can interact with each other, defining smart contracts that run autonomously, 
and say what should happen in, in different circumstances. So pretty much any non-trivial smart contract will eventually need to know about something in the world. You know, did it rain today? Did this particular package arrive? And so on. And that has to come from off the blockchain, from what's often in a rather abusive of language called an oracle. Well, and it so happens, um, yeah, as a result of a few decades of work that we've done, that our Wolfram knowledge base, which powers Wolfram Alpha and so on, provides the only realistic foundation today for making these kinds of smart oracles for blockchains. Something that uh, I'll probably talk about in, in other podcasts um, in the future. Okay, well that was a little bit on what the blockchain word means. Let's turn now to the final word in our quantum neural blockchain AI, AI. So back in the 1950s, people thought that pretty much anything human intelligence could do, it'd soon be possible to make artificial machine intelligence do better. Of course, this turned out to be much harder than people expected. And in fact, the whole concept of creating artificial intelligence pretty much fell into disrepute with almost nobody wanting to market their systems as you know, doing AI. But about five years ago, particularly with the unexpected successes that happened with neural networks, all that changed and AI was back with a vengeance and cooler than ever. Well, what is AI supposed to be? Well, in the big picture, I see it as being a continuation of a long trend of automating things that humans previously had to do for themselves, and in particular doing that through computation. But what makes computation an example of AI as opposed to, well, just another computation? Well, I built a whole scientific and philosophical structure around something I call the principle of computational equivalence that basically says that the universe of possible computations, even ones done by simple systems, is full of computations that are as sophisticated as one can ever get, and certainly as our brains can do. But in doing engineering and in building programs, there's been a tremendous tendency to try to prevent anything too sophisticated from happening and to set things up so that the systems we build just sort of follow exactly steps we can foresee. But there's much more to computation than that. And in fact, I've spent much of my life building systems that make use of this. I mean, Wolfram Alpha is a great example. Its goal is to take as much knowledge about the world as possible and make it computable, then to be able to answer questions as expertly as possible from that computable knowledge. I mean, experientially, it feels like AI because you get to ask it questions in natural language like a human, and then it computes answers often with unexpected sophistication. Most of what's inside Wolfram Alpha doesn't work anything like brains probably do, not least because it's leveraging the last few hundred years of formalism that our civilization has developed that allow us to be much more systematic than brains and reasoning and so on naturally are. Well, some of the things modern neural networks do, and for example the machine learning system in Wolfram Language does, perhaps work a little bit more like brains, but in practice what really seems to make things seem like AI it's just that they're operating on the basis of sophisticated computations whose behavior we can't readily understand. I mean, these days, the way I see it is that out in the computational universe, there's amazing computational power. And the issue is just to be able to harness that for useful human purposes. Yes, an AI can go off and do all sorts of computations that are just as sophisticated as our brains. But the issue is, can we align what it does with things that we care about doing? And yes, I've spent a large part of my life building the Wolfram language, whose purpose is to provide a computational communication language in which humans can express what they want in a form suitable for computation. I mean, there's lots of AI power 
out there in the computational universe, our challenge is to harness it in a way that's useful to us. Oh, and we want to have some kind of computational smart contracts that define how we want the AIs to behave, like be nice to humans. And yes, I, I think the Wolfram language is going to be the right way to express those things and to kind of build up the AI constitutions that we want. Well, okay, so now we talked a little bit about AI. Well, at the outset, it might have seemed that quantum, neural, blockchain, and AI are all completely separate contexts without a lot of concepts without a lot of commonality. But actually, it turns out that there are some amazing common themes between them. One of the strongest has to do with complexity generation. And in fact, in their different ways, all the things we're talking about rely on complexity generation. What do I mean by complexity generation? I mean, I think one day I won't have to explain this, but, but for now I probably still do. And somehow I always find myself kind of showing the same picture, which is of my all-time favorite science discovery, the Rule 30 automaton. So the picture shows a set of rules that just say for, uh, for three neighboring cells, according to the colors of those cells, what color should the middle cell be on the next step. And if you just take these set of eight simple rules and you start applying them to a line of cells, whether at the beginning just the center cell was, say, black, and then just follow these rules at every step going down the page, you end up, even though the rules are very simple, getting this really elaborate pattern. And in a sense, the behavior of the system spontaneously generates complexity and apparent randomness. And actually, what, what happens is complicated enough that it shows what I call computational irreducibility, which means that you basically can't reduce the computational work that you need to see how the system will behave. You essentially just have to follow each step in the evolution of the system and find out what will happen. Well, there are all sorts of important phenomena that revolve around complexity generation and computational irreducibility. The most obvious is just the fact that sophisticated computation is easy to get, which is, in a sense, what makes something like AI possible. But okay, so how does it, for example, relate to blockchain? Well, complexity generation is what makes cryptographic hashing possible. It's also what, it's what allows a, a simple algorithm to make enough apparent randomness to successfully be used as a cryptographic hash. In the case of something like Bitcoin, there's another connection too. The protocol needs people to have to make some investment to be able to add blocks to the blockchain. And the way this is achieved, bizarrely enough, is by forcing them to do irreducible computations that effectively cost computer time. Okay, what about neural nets? Well, the very simplest neural nets don't involve much complexity at all. I mean, if one drew out their basins of attraction for different inputs, they'd just be simple polygons. But in useful neural nets, the basins of attraction are much more complicated. I mean, it's most obvious when one gets to recurrent neural nets, but it happens in the training process for any real-life neural net. There's a computational process that effectively generates complexity as a way to approximate things like the distinction, say, element versus teacup, that get made in the world. Okay, what about quantum mechanics? Is it an analysis act too? Well, quantum mechanics is at some level full of randomness. It's essentially an axiom of the traditional mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics that one can only compute probabilities and that there's no way to kind of see under the randomness. I mean, I personally happen to think it's pretty likely that that's just an approximation, that if one could get underneath things like space and time, 
we'd actually get to see how randomness in quantum mechanics really gets generated. But even in the standard formalism of quantum mechanics, there's a kind of complementary place where randomness and complexity generation is important, and it's in the somewhat mysterious process of measurement. Let's start off by talking about another phenomenon in physics, the second law of thermodynamics, or the law of entropy increase. So this is a law that says if you start, for example, with a bunch of gas molecules in a very orderly configuration, say in, all in one corner of a box, then with overwhelming probability they'll soon randomize and, for example, spread out randomly all over the box. And yes, this, this kind of trend towards randomness is something we see all the time in the world. But here's the strange part. If we look at the laws for, say, the motion of individual gas molecules, they're completely reversible. So just as they say that the molecules can randomize themselves, so also they say that they should be able to unrandomize themselves. But why do we never see that happen? Well, it's always been a bit mysterious, but I think there's a clear answer, and it's related to complexity generation and computational irreducibility. The point is that when the gas molecules randomize themselves, they're effectively encrypting the initial conditions they were given. It's not impossible to place the gas molecules so they'll unrandomize rather than randomize. It's just that to work out how to do this effectively requires breaking the encryption, or in essence doing something very much like what's involved in Bitcoin mining. Okay, so how does this relate to quantum mechanics? Well, quantum mechanics itself is fundamentally based on probability amplitudes and interference between things that can happen. But our experience of the world is that definite things happen. And the bridge from quantum mechanics involves the rather bolted-on idea of quantum measurement. The notion is that some little quantum effect, the electron ends up with spin up rather than down, and so on, needs to get amplified to the point where one can really be sure what happened. In other words, one's measuring device has to make sure that the little quantum effect associated with one electron cascades so that it's spread out across lots and lots of electrons and other things. And here's the tricky part. If one wants to avoid interference being possible so that we can really perceive something definite as having happened, then one needs to have enough randomness that things can't, some, can't somehow equally well go backwards, just like one has to have in thermodynamics. So even though pure quantum circuits, as one imagines them for practical quantum computers, typically have a sufficiently simple mathematical structure that they presumably don't intrinsically generate complexity, the process of measuring what they do inevitably must generate complexity. And yes, it's a reasonable question whether that's actually, in a sense, where the randomness one sees in quantum mechanics really comes from. But that's a different story. Okay, so in what we've been talking about, reversibility and irreversibility are a strangely common theme, at least between quantum and neural and blockchain. So if one ignores measurement, a fundamental feature of quantum mechanics is that it's reversible. So what that means is that if one takes a quantum system and lets it evolve in time, then whatever comes out, one will always, at least in principle, be able to take it and run it backwards to precisely reproduce where one started from. Typical computation isn't like that. It's not reversible. So consider, for example, an OR gate that might be a basic component in a computer. So if you say P or Q, the result will be true if either P or Q is true. But just knowing that the result is true, you can't figure out which of P or Q, or both, is true. In other words, the OR operation is irreversible. It doesn't preserve enough information for you to be able to invert it. So in quantum circuits, 
one uses gates that say take two inputs like P and Q and give not one but two outputs, say P prime and Q primed. And from those two outputs, one can always uniquely reproduce the two inputs. Okay, so let's talk about neural nets. Neural nets, as they're usually conceived, are fundamentally irreversible. Here's why. Imagine, again, that you make a neural net to distinguish elephants and teacups. To make that work, a very large number of different possible input images all have to map to, say, elephant. And it's like an OR gate, but more so. Just knowing that the result is elephant, there's no unique way to invert the computation. And that's the whole point. One wants anything that's enough like the elephant pictures one showed to still come out as elephant. In other words, irreversibility is actually central to the whole operation of at least this kind of neural net. So, okay, so then how could one, for example, possibly make a quantum neural net? Maybe it's just not possible. But if so, then what's going on, for example, with our brains? Because brains seem to work very much like neural nets, and yet brains are physical systems that presumably follow quantum mechanics. So how, then, are brains possible? Well, at some level, the answer has to do with the fact that brains dissipate heat. Okay, so what is heat? Well, microscopically, heat is the random motion of things like molecules. And one way to state the second law of thermodynamics, or law of entropy increase, is that under normal circumstances, those random motions never spontaneously organize themselves into any kind of systematic motion. In principle, all those molecules could start moving in just such a way as to turn a flywheel, for example. But in practice, nothing like that ever happens. The heat just stays as heat and doesn't spontaneously turn into macroscopic mechanical motion. Okay, but so let's imagine that microscopic processes involving, say, collisions of molecules are precisely reversible, as in fact they are according to quantum mechanics. Then the point is that when lots of molecules are involved, their motions can get, kind of get so encrypted that they just seem random. I mean, if one could look at all the details, there'd still be enough information to reverse everything. But in practice, one can't do that. And so it seems like whatever was going on in the system just has just sort of turned into heat. So then, what about producing neural net behavior? Well, the point is that while one part of a system is, say, systematically deciding to say elephant, the detailed information that will be needed to go back to the initial state is getting randomized and turning into heat. To be fair, though, this is glossing over quite a bit, and in fact, I don't think anyone knows how one can actually set up a quantum system, say a quantum circuit, that behaves in this kind of way. It'd actually be pretty interesting to do so, because it would potentially tell us a lot about the quantum measurement process. So, to explain how one goes from quantum mechanics in which everything is just an amplitude to our experience of the world in which definite things seem to happen, people sometimes end up trying to appeal to sort of mystical features of quant consciousness. But the point about a quantum neural net is that it's quantum mechanical, yet it comes to definite conclusions, like elephant versus teacup. So, is there a good, even toy model for such a thing? I suspect one could create one from a quantum version of a cellular automaton that shows phase transition behavior. Like, a phase transition is something like uh, water turning into steam or, or ice turning into water. But, um, uh, and it's also like um, a magnet being magnetized or when it's heated up, demagnetizing. And it's actually, so when one, if one was to create a toy model for a quantum neural net, it might not be unlike the detailed mechanics of a real quantum magnetic material. And 
What's necessary is that the system has enough components, say spins, that the heat needed to compensate for the apparent irreversible behavior of the neural net deciding something will stay away from the part where that irreversible behavior of deciding something is observed. Well, let me make a slightly confusing, perhaps, side remark. When people talk about quantum computers, they're usually talking about quantum circuits that operate on qubits, quantum analogs of binary bits. But sometimes they actually mean something different. They mean quantum annealing devices. So imagine, for example, you've got a bunch of dominoes and you're trying to arrange them on a table so that some matching condition associated with the markings on the dominoes is always satisfied. Turns out that this can be a very hard problem. It's actually related to computational irreducibility and perhaps to problems like integer factoring. But in the end, to find out, say, the configuration that does best in satisfying the domino matching condition everywhere, one may effectively have to just try out all possible configurations of dominoes and see which one works best. Well, okay, but let's imagine the dominoes were actually molecules, and the matching condition corresponds to arranging molecules so that they minimize energy. Then the problem of finding the best overall configuration is like the problem of finding the minimum energy configuration for the molecules, which physically should correspond to, for example, the most stable solid structure that can be formed from the molecules. And okay, it might be hard to compute that. But what about an actual physical system? What will the molecules in it actually do when one cools it down? If it's easy for the molecules to get to the lowest energy configuration, they'll just do it, and one will have a nice crystalline solid. And people sometimes assume that the physics will always figure it out in that kind of way, and that even if the problem is computationally hard, the molecules will always find the optimal solution to it. But I don't actually think this is true, and I think what instead will happen is that the material, when the problem is hard, will just kind of turn mushy when you cool it down, not quite liquid and not quite solid, at least for a very long time. Still, there's the idea that if one sets up this energy minimization problem quantum mechanically, then the physical system will be successful at finding the lowest energy state. And in quantum mechanics, it might be harder to, for example, get stuck in local minima because there's quantum tunneling and so on. But here's the confusing part. When one trains a neural net, one ends up effectively having to solve minimization problems just like the one I'm talking about with dominoes. It's basically which values of weights make the network minimize the error in its output relative to what one wants. So people end up sometimes talking about quantum neural nets, meaning these kind of domino-like arrays, which are set up to have energy minimization problems that are mathematically equivalent to the ones for neural nets. Yes, there's yet another connection in convolutional neural nets, which are the kind that are used, for example, typically in image recognition, and are structured very much like cellular automata or dynamic spin systems. The point is there that in training neural nets to handle multi-scale features and images, one ends up with a kind of scale invariance that's similar to what one sees at what are called critical points in things like spin systems or in their quantum analogs and things that get analyzed using a method called the renormalization group. So that's, that's a kind of another mathematical connection between what happens in neural nets um, and what happens in, in things like quantum spin systems. Okay, but let's return to our whole buzzword string. What about blockchain? Well, one of the big points about a blockchain is in the sense to be as irreversible as possible. Once something's been added to a blockchain, one wants it to be inconceivable that it should ever be reversed out. 
So how is that achieved? Well, it's curiously similar to how it works in thermodynamics or in quantum measurement. Imagine someone adds a block to their copy of a blockchain. Well, then the idea is that lots of other people all over the world will make their own copies of that block on their own blockchain nodes and then go on independently adding more blocks from there. Bad things would happen if lots of the people maintaining blockchain nodes decided to collude to not add a block or to modify it. But it's a bit like with gas molecules or with the degrees of freedom in quantum measurement. By the time everything is spread out among enough components, it's extremely unlikely that it'll all concentrate together again to have some systematic effect. Of course, people might not be quite like gas molecules, though frankly their observed behavior, say jostling around in a crowd, is often strikingly similar. But all sorts of things in the world depend on the assumption of randomness. In fact, that's, for example, what's probably necessary to maintain stability and robustness in, for example, markets where trading is happening, like financial markets. Okay, so when a blockchain tries to ensure that there's a, a definite history, it's doing something very similar to what a quantum measurement has to do. But just to close the loop a little more, let's ask what a quantum blockchain might be like. Yeah, one could imagine using quantum computing to somehow break the cryptography in a standard blockchain, but the more interesting and, in my view, more realistic possibility is to make the actual operation of the blockchain itself be quantum mechanical. I mean, in a typical blockchain, there's a certain element of arbitrariness in how blocks get added and who gets to do it in a kind of proof-of-work scheme, like it's used in Bitcoin and currently also in Ethereum, one to find out how to add a new block, one searches for a nonce, which is a number to throw in to make a hash come out in a certain way. There are always many possible nonces, though each one is hard to find, and the typical strategy is to search randomly for them, successively kind of testing each candidate. But one could imagine a quantum version in which one is in fact searching in parallel for all possible nonces and as a result producing many possible blockchains, each with a certain quantum amplitude. Well, to fill out that concept, imagine that, for example, in the case of Ethereum, let's say, all computations done on the blockchain were reversible quantum ones, say achieved with some quantum version of the Ethereum virtual machine. What would one do with such a blockchain? Yes, it would be an interesting quantum system with all kinds of dynamics, but to actually connect it to the world, one has to get data on and off the blockchain. Or in other words, one has to do a measurement. And the act of that measurement would in effect force the blockchain to pick a definite history. Okay, so what about a neural blockchain? Well, at least today, by far the most common strategy with neural nets is first to train them, then put them to work. One can train them kind of passively by just feeding them a fixed set of examples, or one can train them actively by having them, in effect, ask for the examples they want. But by analogy with people, neural nets can also have kind of lifelong learning in which they're continually getting updated based on the experiences they're having. So how do neural nets record these experiences? Well, by changing various internal weights. In some ways, what happens is like what happens with blockchains. I mean. Science fiction sometimes talks about, you know, direct brain-to-brain -brain transfer of memories. And in a neural net context, this might mean just taking a big block of weights from one neural net and putting it in another. And yes, it can work well to transfer definite layers in one neural net to another, say, to transfer information on what features of imaging, images are worth picking out. But if you try to insert a memory deep inside a network, it's a different story, because the way a memory is represented in a network will depend on the whole history of the network. It's like in a blockchain. 
You can't just replace one block and expect everything else to work. The whole thing has been knitted into the sequence of things that happen through time. And it's the same thing with memories in neural nets. Once a memory has formed in a certain way, subsequent memories will be built on top of this one. I have to say, that when I started uh, thinking about this, one might, I might have thought that you know quantum, neural, and blockchain, not to mention AI, didn't have much in common, other than that they're current buzzwords, and that in fact they might be in some sense incompatible. But what we've seen is that actually there are all sorts of connections between them and all sorts of fundamental phenomena that are shared between systems that are based on them. Okay, so in the end, what might a quantum neural blockchain AI, or QuanBi, be like? Let's look at the pieces again. A single blockchain node is a bit like a single brain with a definite memory. But in a sense, the whole blockchain network becomes robust through all the interactions between different blockchain nodes. It's a little like how human society and human knowledge develop. I mean, let's say we've got sort of a, a raw AI that can do all sorts of computation. Well, the big issue is whether we can find a way to align what it can do with things we humans think we want to do. And to make that alignment, we essentially have to communicate with the AI at, at a level of abstraction that transcends the details of how it works. In effect, we have to have some symbolic language that we both understand and that, for example, AI can translate into the details of how it operates. So inside the AI, it may end up having and using all sorts of concepts, say, to distinguish one class of images from another. But the question is whether those concepts are ones that we humans, in a sense, culturally understand. In other words, are those concepts, and for example, the words for them, ones that there's a whole widely understood story about. In a sense, concepts that we humans find useful for communication are ones that have been used in all sorts of interactions between different humans. I mean, the concepts become robust by being knitted into the thought patterns of many interacting brains. A bit like the data put on a blockchain becomes a robust part of collective blockchain memory through the interactions between blockchain nodes. Okay, so there's something strange here. I mean, at first, it seemed like Quanbys would have be something completely exotic and unfamiliar, and perhaps even impossible. But somehow, as we go over the features, they start to seem awfully familiar, and actually awfully like us. Yes, according to physics, we know we're quantum. Neural nets capture many core features of how our brains seem to work. Blockchain, at least as a general concept, is somehow related to individual and societal memory. And AI? Well, AI, in effect, tries to capture what's aligned with human goals and intelligence in the computational universe, which is also what we're doing. Okay, so what's the closest thing we know to a Quanbi? Well, it's probably all of us. I mean, maybe that sounds crazy. I mean, why should a string of buzzwords from 2018 connect like that? Well, at some level, perhaps there's an obvious answer. We tend to create and study things that are relevant to us and somehow revolve around us. And more than that, the buzzwords of today are things that somehow just lie within the scope that we can now think about with the concepts we've currently developed and that are somehow connected through them. I have to say, when I, when I chose these buzzwords, I really had no idea they would connect at all. But as I've, as I've tried to work through things, and writing my blog post, for example, it's been remarkable how much connection I've found. And, and yes, in a fittingly bizarre end to a somewhat bizarre journey, it does seem to be the case that a 
string plucked from today's kind of buzzword universe has landed very close to home. And maybe in the end, at least in some sense, we are our buzzwords. So our Easter egg is hatching. Thanks.